2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week is the 400th edition of Little Atoms, in which I'm joined by an old friend, and we talk to Juliet Jakes about her book, Trans, A Memoir. Welcome to this, the 400th edition of Little Atoms, on which occasion I've invited back my erstwhile Little Atoms colleague, Becky Hogg, to join me for this interview. And um, Becky is going to introduce our guest today, who is Juliette Jakes.
0: Juliette Jakes is a freelance writer best known for The Guardian's transgender journey, the first time the gender reassignment process had been serialised for a major British publication. Her column was longlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2011. She's been included in The Independence Pink for the past four years and is a regular contributor to The New Statesman. She's also written for Granta, Time Out, Film Waves, 3am, The London Review of Books, The New Humanist and The New Inquiry and many other publications besides. She lives in London and we're here to discuss her book Trans, A Memoir, published this year by Verso.
2: And Juliet, that title, Trans a Memoir, it's not very far into the book that you point out that when you were growing up and sort of first coming to terms with your gender that it was a frustration to you that the only writing on Trans Matters was memoirs. And you get into that a bit more later into the book as well. So that title, is that, is that a joke? Is that supposed to be ironic?
3: Um, it's There are lots of weird factors going into that title. One was just the fact that I felt that in 2012 to 13, when we were doing the proposal for the book, That neither I nor the subject matter was sort of well known enough to give it anything less direct. Mm -hmm. I mean another is that I spent a lot of time as a sixth former studying Brecht and you know the sort of Brechtian tactic of very overtly just flagging up the sort of form and content of what Mm -hmm. you're doing and of course you know trans and memoir sort of appealed to me because trans as the content and memoir is ostensibly the form but of course the word memoir is there to say what the book sort of both is and isn't. Uh, It's not really a conventional memoir I don't think certainly not like the ones I reference in the book that were from the sort of 60s and 70s or even earlier and I mean my favourite band is called the Pop Group and I quite like the sort of directness of that so it felt like a little kind of nod to that as well
0: that um, non-conventional memoir style you as we were coming up the stairs, we're talking about how the last time, we're in Verso's offices now, and the last time you were here, you were uh, going through the editing process in the Mm. book. It's not a format you came to initially. It sort of developed over time. I wondered if you could speak about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, initially I wanted the book to just constantly question its own sort of conventions, things that might be seen as clichés and how I was using them, questioning the motivations of the audience, whether they're reading out of kind of prurience or voyeurism, and to constantly have little asides, talking directly to the reader, uh, and that didn't really work very well. My editor didn't like it and he just felt it made be too distant from the reader. Actually, several of the reviews have said that I'm still quite distant from the reader but I got a lot closer and was trying to find a place I was comfortable with because I moved the other way from there to trying to write a book that was kind of more intimate and more formally conventional and I just wasn't comfortable with either of those things. It's not what I read, it's not what I like. And, you know, I wanted the book to balance sort of personal life with wider social historical political cultural aspects of trans living and culture and i was struggling to get that balance right and so leo hollis who edited the book eventually suggested just splitting them off and starting with the surgery which i initially wanted to do and then moved it towards the end and then moved it back to the start so i started with the surgery which i then had to argue should have the Guardian headline and strap line on it. Just does it have a book that was as much about the media and engaging with the media mm-hmm. as about transition itself. To start with the surgery, because it established a good sense of self, the problem I had before was I tried to write two chapters about my childhood. And of course, in my childhood, I'm kind of closeted. I can't tell anyone about this trans issue. I don't have the language for it. So you'd have, you know, 10,000 words where the narrative couldn't start. And so it struck me as a much better thing to do to weave that childhood material back through other bits of the book. Quite a lot of it's in chapter five, where I go and see a therapist for the first time. And part of the problem was that in order to write those two chapters from a child's perspective, my editor wanted me to kind of write in a more kind of childlike register. And I was like a really annoyingly sort of precocious and pretentious child. So no one would believe that the actual 10-year-old me sort of spoke and behaved in the way I did. But I was sort of born at the age of 40, so that wasn't really ever going to work. So it worked a lot better to start the book at university and constantly pan back to the childhood stuff and then to as Leo suggests like interspersed the longer personal chapters with shorter asides that were linked to the material that had come just before that you know covered kind of like trans representation in film or trans theory in the 90s and noughties or engaged in you know directly covering kind of media coverage that kind of thing and you know those theoretical chapters are still I think quite personal I want to talk about trans representation in popular
2: culture mm. and we'll get towards the end of the interview to what things are like now perhaps what part this book has played in that, whether anything has really changed, but let's go back to when you were growing up, and perhaps let's first start with those memoirs that you mentioned earlier on, so what were the typical like people will be familiar with Jan Morris, certainly mm. I think a famous travel writer, but who also wrote one of the seminal Trans memoirs back in the day So let's talk about the. Well I suppose what I want to get to Is the sort of clichés that develop Out of those memoirs
3: Yeah uh, I mean they're all things I read in my 20s actually Earlier on I'd sort of watched films And just seen kind of one-off newspaper Mm -hmm. articles and stuff But in terms of the memoirs You know I sort of read several of them Without ever finding them particularly satisfactory And sort of thinking actually the memoir It's not a genre I particularly like I don't read a lot of them And so I started to read things like Jan Morris's Conundrum Which was published in 1974 very much frames her transition as sort of, you know, opens up by saying, you know, I knew I was different as a child and was born in the wrong body and then weighs up this sort of, you know, good career, family, nice house, you know, all of those things that you're supposed to want as sort a of good middle class southern English person and um you know, weighs them up against the impulse to transition <laughs> and the potential losing of those things. And that didn't really speak to me because I was from a good bourgeois home and I hated it and I couldn't think of anything worse. And I just kind of thought, where are the stories that break out of that or Mm -hmm. don't aspire to kind of normalise yourself back into that? And I mean, I started reading a lot of trans theory in the mid-noughties yeah, I lived in Brighton, lucky enough to have a good LGBT library. Um, I've been to the University of Sussex, I've sort of been around some of the queer student students there. And, uh, you know, started reading, uh, in particular, Sandy Stone, who kind of looms quite large mm-hmm. throughout this book, I think. And Sandy Stone's response to Janice Raymond's text, The Transsexual Empire, which is the most famous kind of radical feminist Mm -hmm. and transphobic sort of tract. It's really, you know, kind of alleges that like transsexual people like more transsexual women like rape women's bodies by appropriating them and all of this. And that was largely prompted by Sandy Stone working for this all women record collective in the 70s. -hmm stone eventually had to leave um and a decade later stone published this manifesto called the empire strikes back brilliantly titled absolutely that that immediately yeah. dates when this is going on yeah well absolutely <laughs> and um yeah and uh, a post-transsexual manifesto and so stone you would think might start with the sort of feminist critiques but actually starts with jan morris and mm-hmm. various other transsexual memoirs saying that they tended to sort of actually obscure territory between male and female and just posit the transsexual women's memoirs tended to posit the central characters as male until the moment of surgery mm-hmm. and then really weird things happen in the text i mean lily elba's one which is the first one in the 30s talks about writing with a women's script after surgery and sandy stone says well what's that like no wonder feminists have been suspicious i'm suspicious that doesn't make any sense and so talks about writing that space between male and female exploring it seeing trans bodies as a genre really and something that can be constantly kind of in flux mm-hmm. um and really opens up all these kind of really interesting creative possibilities. So I kind of ended up finding the theory a lot more interesting than memoir. But there was this big divide in the trans activist community, I think, Mm -hmm. between sort of, you know, seeing theory as good and memoir as bad, because memoir was sort of cliched and conventional and written for outsiders rather than for us and all of this. And I kind of thought, well, hang on, I'm not sure these two things are as far apart as you might think. Not because the memoir is full of theory, but the sort of theory, a lot of it, uh, Julia Serrano, um, Leslie Feinberg, Kate Bornstein, writers like that, North Americans from the sort of 90s and mid 90s a lot of that theory was full of autobiographical material and very, very upfront about drawing explicitly on personal experience and relating that to theory and, you know, sort of lived practice. Um, and I kind of thought, well, why can't you take that approach but call it a memoir? Uh, as a sort of Trojan horse to, you know, get those ideas to a wider audience, because I don't know about in North America, but certainly it seemed to be the case in Britain that those writers had a certain audience amongst kind of trans community, uh, certain feminist circles that wasn't really reaching much further. I thought that, yeah, this memoir form could be a way of kind of getting them to a wider range of people and, and, you know... Having a dialogue between those forms. Right? It's,
2: it's worth pointing out as well that you, you, you know you were at a university this time. Mm. You, were, you, you were you know a cultural critic, so you were also immersed in in all of those postmodern critics who were doing that sort of thing to popular culture anyway. so mm. How those sort of like Borstein and whatever critics? I mean, how much of that would have filtered down to somebody in a southern English town that wasn't necessarily having the access to those sort of cultural critics?
3: Well, I think if you're you weren't online and you hadn't been around a university. Which nobody was, really. Yeah, yeah, I think at that time it wouldn't have done an awful Mm -hmm. lot, really. I mean, Suzanne Moore actually wrote about Kate Bornstein in the mid-90s, you know, not negatively. Uh, And she, as far as I'm aware, was the only person really doing that, uh, as far as I can tell. So it didn't really filter down. It didn't filter down to me, which is what made me want to do this sort of writing in the first Mm -hmm. place, because, you know, I just sort of looked at the discourse and thought, well, there's nothing that quite speaks to me. I'm going to have to... Created. And that was still the case in 2009 when actually there was the opposite problem, I think, in sort of the early 90s. It was just impossible to find this stuff or well, sort of mid to late 90s I guess because that was when it actually happened the early 90s you couldn't find it, it didn't exist yet so sort of you know late 90s early noughties you wouldn't necessarily know it was there whereas by the late noughties there was loads of trans stuff on the internet but no obvious starting point point. and you know I would frequently kind of look for trans stuff online in the late noughties and just think well there's just loads of this and it's largely American and I don't really know what's relevant to me and where to look.
0: I'm Olivia Lang and you're listening to Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture in terms of other places to look one of the great strengths i found from the book was how the broad kind of cultural references that you explore and how you look to them to understand your own experience everything from Morrissey to Almodovar with lots in between um, I wondered if you could speak about that for a little while with sort of how culture was, a, was more of a help
3: Yeah well I mean in the book I, I talk about how that comes partly out of necessity expediency because of section 28 mm. because the Thatcher government had basically banned public bodies from disseminating really in practice any information about gender or sexuality whatsoever so you know as a teenager was really forced to look elsewhere. And again, you know, in the absence of regular internet access, you dial-up, in my late teens, but not before... You know was really forced to either read my parents the sort of newspapers and magazines which were the daily mail and not much else so you know that wasn't massively helpful or flick through television channels and go through pop music to try and find any sort of gender variants that i could sort of latch onto. and you know i found lots of, sort of pop videos that had some sort of cross-dressing in but didn't really kind of get beyond that Were you know there's a real sort of explosion of kind of gay and particularly gay male culture in the 90s and if you stayed up late i was lucky enough to have a tv in my room and so you know if you stayed up late you could find things on bbc 2 or channel 4 whether it was films uh that made their way onto tv like *The queen of the desert or the crying game that dealt with these things relatively sensitively um or even you know more kind of hostile stuff like ace ventura pet detective which you know, has this by now i think notorious scene where jim carrey's protagonist realizes that the woman at the centre of this investigation used to be this American football player and kind of tracks her down and basically just like sexually sort of humiliates and assaults her in front of a group of men who are all kind of sick at the sight of a transsexual body. It's not aged well.
2: I've never actually seen that film and, and that description of it in a book is just, I, I, I just could not believe even that recently that that was something that, that would be in a mainstream Hollywood film, it's amazing.
3: was deemed sort of largely acceptable yeah. and passed sort of mostly without comment, mm-hmm. yeah. So sort of looking through stuff like that really and gradually finding my way to people who spoke to me and it was usually because you know I didn't have the word trans, I had the words transsexual and transvestite and none mm-hmm. of them really appealed to me although Eddie Izzard did a very good job of sort of taking that word transvestite and pulling it out of just these sort of seedy and kind of tragic stereotypes of you know just kind of high-powered men sort of secretly cross-dressing uh and you know did something much more um interesting and clever with it Mm -hmm. you know it became a lot easier to come out to friends of mine in the late 90s because of Eddie Izzard actually but um you know Morrissey really spoke to me um I didn't really know about the worst successes of his politics at that point. But, you know, he really kind of gave me a language, gave me a sort of set of cultural references, put mm-hmm. people like Candy Darling on the cover of the record sleeves, Candy Darling, the like trans or Warhol superstar. Uh, and then that ended up leading me into, yeah, a certain type of kind of American underground mm-hmm. film Warhol, Jack Smith, The Couchards, uh, Rum Rice, that sort of thing. And um, also led me towards people like Jane County, the transsexual punk singer, and I read her autobiography, Man Not to mm-hmm. Be a Woman, which I think is probably my favourite, like, trans autobiographical text I've read. Partly because surgery isn't a big deal in there. It's mm-hmm. a paragraph or two explaining she didn't want to do it. But mainly because she just kind of lives a queer life. Like I said, she gets around this. This thing of normatising yourself and, and you know sort of bounces around different parts of a sort of English American and German counterculture is really interesting ways so led me to things like that so you know pop culture I have a very awkward relationship with it I don't light pop culture I don't follow it i'm a snob basically i am uh, so increasingly it was sort of trying to find the types of sort of underground or sort of independent or alternative or left field or just interesting kind of culture and of course part of the problem with that is that you know trans identities are frequently sort of derided as sort of inauthentic mm-hmm. or frivolous or not serious somehow and so you know there's a marginalized from that sort of culture as well
2: Well, perhaps that can bring us to some of those cliches. I mean, you just mentioned growing up with your parents and they'd have the Daily Mail. Another place when I was growing up that trans people were visible was in tabloid newspapers Mm. because know was always a, a great juicy story here's a guy who looks like a builder who is now this beautiful yeah, yeah. beautiful woman and there would be these cliches one that you've already mentioned earlier on which is the idea of somebody being born in the wrong body which I think is something that actually most people would be familiar with as yeah and so, the thing
3: is it's not inaccurate it's not that that doesn't speak for people I just thought things are a bit more complicated than that
2: mm-hmm. well let's talk about how things are more complicated
3: yeah well I mean just to sort of address your your first point really yeah sort of tabloid newspaper coverage I mean yeah like you talk about the sort of focus of a lot of these tabloids on the kind of the beauty of the male-female woman, mm. and you know that didn't really speak to me either because I kind of thought well that's not why I'm doing this so and you know I sort of found that quite alienating as well I thought well I'm only supposed to focus on you know this pure sort of aesthetics I wasn't massively interested in sort of fashion or anything so I struggled with that and I found that quite alienating for a long time until yeah I found my way to other kind of trans people elsewhere that suggested that no you didn't have to live like that I mean the other problem with a lot of the tabloid coverage that I saw I mean even the male would occasionally be sympathetic I mean a lot of the male's coverage focused around the NHS and saying look these weirdos want this like unnecessary surgery using your money. Uh, that was the sort of main line of their coverage. But every now and again, there'd be a more positive story. But it would be like a one off, you know, be in the female section or the weekend magazine or Sunning. You know, would be a one-off story where it would be very much, like, like I said, following that sort of convention that's set down in the Jan Morris book where male to female, kind of head of a sort of, you know, traditional nuclear family and, you know, good job and nice house in the suburbs and nice car and all the things you're supposed mm-hmm. to want and, you know, but has this uh, transition and it's a big risk. And, you know, it's not that it wasn't a big risk for people, and of course it was, I and mean, it still is, but, you know, I found that really difficult to deal with. The sort of born-in-the-wrong-body thing, I can see why that evolved as a metaphor in the sort of post-war period because you know you have to have a strong language to try and convey the feeling of gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. i mean it's you know i've kind of found it's 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 like kind of describing physical pain to somebody is the feeling of gender dysphoria you can try and put it into words as best you can but you can't make someone else feel it which makes it very hard for other people to understand it you know to most people it's just been kind of completely incomprehensible
0: sort of like how gender dysphoria are you feeling on a scale of one to ten that's what they always ask you about pain
2: yeah. Well, it's and- interesting. Well, I mean, we'll get more into this in the, in the second part, but it it seems so that it sort of doesn't dissipate for you the further along the route you go, and it hits you at interesting times, yeah. and then it puts you know where you you know at one point you get you know you go to a wedding and mm. stuff, and so you're expected to, to dress as a man again, and it's at those moments when that most hits you. I
3: think. Yeah, I mean that bit of the book is is weird. It's like my brother's wedding, and I kind of go as male, but I go wearing some makeup and a pink shirt and loafers, and it actually feels quite androgynous anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't doesn't actually feel that different, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the lessening of the gender dysphoria did happen at, at, you know, unpredictable times. I mean, there's, you know, there's a real trope of, like, trans memoirs, and I tried to do something interesting with it. It's kind of a mirror scene where I'm mm-hmm. dressing in a mirror kind of pre-surgery, but suddenly I can just see that, you know, people have been saying to me, oh, your face is changing, your body's changing, uh, and I'm kind of like, well, it doesn't really seem to be. I'm not seeing it, and suddenly really notice it. And um, after kind of two years on the hormones or more, two and a half, no, one and a half. Uh, I suddenly, really feel it. Uh, yeah, that was really interesting and yeah, very unpredictable. <laughs>
2: atoms i'm neil denny i've been joined by becky hogg to celebrate our 400th edition of little atoms and we're talking about trans a memoir to juliet jakes
0: juliet we've already spoken a little bit about the traditional memoir around the transgender experience um and at the end you say you resisted this kind of high five freeze frame moment right after (laughs) surgery as being the end of the story so instead of talking about the process that you went through as a as a hero's journey you describe it instead as a series of administrative hoops Mm-hmm. to jump through. But for me as a reader what really brought the story together was your very vivid description of the different settings in which this process took place. Hmm. First of all Manchester as a student, then um Brighton which I particularly enjoyed because that's where I'm from and then London. And I wondered if you could take us through the process of administrative hoops with those settings in mind.
3: Right, well I'm in the administrative hoops don't start in Manchester Ooh. the Manchester chapters of the book are, are more me kind of exploring different scenes where I think I might be accepted as a trans person and one of them is the kind of what was then being called the gay and lesbian scene which didn't really work for me at all and the other was the music scene because you know the earlier bits of my life you know as I talked about earlier sort I of saw certain type of like pop and alternative music as a kind of queer and trans space that i could forge out so it doesn't really start in manchester and i moved to brighton and then to kind of start the gender reassignment process in 2009 and it just starts in my gp's office uh nonetheless making that kind of leap of faith kind of uttering those words you know i want to start this process and so it starts there and i'm actually working for the nhs primary care trust at the time so i'm working for the body that is kind of both funding my transition and has done the work of establishing the pathway that i'm going to go through and what bits of the service i have to pay for and what i don't um so you know getting hormones and surgery for free but having to pay for hair removal were the sort of crucial issues really so you get the different hoops to jump through in terms of just the official aspects of the process the bureaucracy of it but also you know coming out to family friends colleagues dealing with People in the street, and nearly all of that happens in Brighton. And getting a sense of Brighton as a place that, yeah, had a very visible kind of LGBT community, trans community, but also because of the very visibility of that community, meant it also invited quite a lot of abuse. Mm, sure. um, more so than I actually got in small towns where, you know, people just wouldn't know a transsexual person if they fell over them. So, um, you know, that was an interesting kind of paradox. I found that when I went back to like Hawley or Crawley, where I was from, you know, got virtually nothing. No one was looking for me in the same way. So, you know, there were those aspects of it. And then, of course, the actual gender identity clinic at Charing Cross, or it's called Charing Cross with Hammersmith. So, I mean, a lot of the book just describes the kind of feel of of those medical establishments. And I really wanted to take a lot of the sort of mystification and kind of any glamour out of this writing, really. You know, um, Jan Morris, uh, we talked about earlier, I mean, partly because she's a travel writer. Um, you know, the surgery happens in Morocco. And of course that was where she had to go at that time and lots of people did go to this surgery uh, in morocco i think april ashley went there as well but you know partly because morris is a travel writer there's this real you know exoticism to the surgery that ties in with the location and, you know, in my book I say, no, this isn't really that different to the hospital I used to clean when I was 17 and, like, worked at East Surrey Hospital in Red Hill. And, you know, it's it's just a kind of process, really. I mean, just to go back to the title briefly, I mean, one of the titles I sort of half considered, along with How to Be a Trans Woman and a few other things that I sort of, you know, jokingly threw in and then threw out. But the title of the trial in German is der prozess And I quite like the idea of calling it the process, Uh, but I don't think I would have been allowed to. But yeah, there was a real...
0: I'm surprised because that would have got you some good hits on Google.
3: You'd think think. so, wouldn't you? Yeah. I don't think I ever seriously tabled it, so, um, yeah.
0: So is it just then my familiarity with the locality of Brighton that's reading into, because for me, the sense of place is very real in the book. Mm. And yet for you, this is something that could have happened anywhere, or do you associate... Well, no, I wanted to
3: get a very real sense of place in. I mean, I think in memoirs in particular, you know, in the sort specifics you find the general Mm. and i i mean it's partly because of just the aims of the book as well it wasn't just that i wanted to show what the transition process was like i mean for lots of people in this country transition would take place in doctors surgeries and medical organizations but you know to give a sense of just how brighton in particular made me you know, as a person who was trans. And some of the other things I wanted to come up in the book, I mean, you know, one of the things I really wanted the book to do, as well as, you know, be a transition memoir, was to give a sense of what it was like to have a sort of Thatcherite education, a Blairite graduation. And so yeah, section twenty eight having this huge effect over my schooling that I not even able to see until mm-hmm. I leave. And then this kind of Blairite thing. I mean, one of my favourite bits of the book is where it's two thousand six, it's three years after I graduated with you know got kind of a good degree and you know, I had high hopes for we were promised that education would solve all of Britain's problems and uh, you know I'm working at Legal and General on you know sort of barely above the minimum wage on like a very shaky temp job not able to take any time off with RSI because I can't afford to be out of work and you know just spending all my time just slacking off trying to not to get caught while I'm not like, on the Guardian site reading about like the latest car bomb deaths in Iraq um, and what that kind of came down to so I wanted a very strong place of time and place in that way and you know one of the ways I try and do it is through the kind of music scenes in Brighton and Manchester in particular and kind of cultural feel to them and where the cities are at with their respective kind of gentrifications and you know things like that
0: in that sense it is a political book because then the government changes again and suddenly we're facing cuts to the NHS and Mm. your next job is in jeopardy yeah Um, yeah.
3: as well as the you know services that I'm reliant on sure I want to go back to the
2: the process and one part of it which is I mean it sounds horrific is this thing the real life experience Mm. almost expect that sounds like it's going to be uh, out of work actors dressed up as (laughs) historical characters (laughs) telling you telling you Let's talk about this idea that basically you've got to live as a woman all the time for mm. a particular a particular part of time almost as a test yes
3: yeah. well exactly as a test <laughs> yeah um i think sarah brown always says on on twitter that you know the only reason why they still do the real life experience is because they've always done it um and when i worked for nhs brighton hove you know there are people there saying actually especially for male to female people because estrogen works less quickly and less strongly on a male body than testosterone does in a female one they always used to say that, particularly for some mild female people, you know, hormones could be used as a diagnostic tool because the effects of them don't become irreversible for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, you know, use them for a few months and then if they're not right for you, stop taking them and, you know, nothing irreversible will have happened to your body. So, you know, obviously I wished I could have done that because it would have sped the whole thing up. And the whole thing did feel like a trial.
0: There's a particular moment in the book where you're given the oestrogen for the first time mm. and... The pharmacist had it there all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, just around the corner. And, yeah. and yet you'd had to gone had to go through. Was it a year or eighteen? Uh,
3: Fifteen months. Fifteen months. Yeah.
0: Of this real life experience in order to have earned the right to, to request it.
3: Getting from across the counter, mm. you
0: know.
2: But how much of that was also wrapped up in this idea that you know that the establishment doesn't necessarily believe you or take it so seriously? That yeah. There's always a, bit, a long period of time in which, at any point, there's a way mm. out. You can change your mind.
3: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I wonder how. Much much of that is to do with the uh, formation of this process in a pretty transphobic environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the process is something that's designed to make it as hard as possible for you to transition. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily the will or the intention behind the services now. I don't think it is, mm-hmm. but I think it might have been, you know... But that is where it ago. came out if yeah. That's the milieu that it came um, out of. Yeah, exactly. So
0: You can see the same thing going on with access to abortion, actually. There's the law mm. that you have to have a scan before you're uh, given an abortion. I don't know if that's still the case, but... Yeah, again, the process was made to make it hard. Yeah,
3: and more, I think, in mind of kind of protecting other people from being exposed to trans people than anything else. I mean, again, I think that's less the case now, but certainly, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, the advice you were given was to try and pass and, you know, invent a new history for yourself and not tell anyone you were trans and go and live and work somewhere else. And so, you know, this whole process of basically kind of making you publicly live you know, as a woman or as a man without hormones for quite a long time and constantly being read and kind of attacked and policed and regulated Uh, and then, you know, detaching you from your any sort of support networks that you might have and then when it didn't go well for you, just saying, oh, well, they're trans, that's why they're depressed or, you know, whatever. Um, And again, I mean, thinking is a lot more sophisticated now, I think. But, yeah, there are sort of residues of that process and, yeah, the real-life experience is still kind of one for them. And mine ended up lasting, yeah, 15 months where I got the hormones and... Well, three years before the surgery. I'm Andrew
2: Muller. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. I want to go back to this idea that we talked about in the first part about that sort of born in the wrong body cliche. Mm. And I guess one of the, the ways in which it's perhaps difficult for cis people to, to sort of imagine, to empathise with the experience of trans people is that everybody's experience of that of that process is different. Mm. And as you mentioned, somebody like you know, like Jane County talks very eloquently about, you know, not wanting or being interested in, in the surgery. Some people do, you are yourself. So can we perhaps talk about when did you first feel that this was something that you were going to do
3: yeah when I was about 10 I think although you know I didn't know what and again a lot of that was a lack of language you know different gender positions have so much terminology <laughs> now which are, you know very contested territory but and how does it, it manifest itself
2: for you then in, in ways that perhaps are not you know like I'm saying the, the, the experience of everybody is mm. is different so
3: well, for me it became just like really acute depression anxiety <laughs> kind of mental illness because um, you know I have nowhere to take it didn't feel like I could talk to anyone you know culturally there were no positive role models and nothing bringing the subject up like i said you know in schools and libraries there was no material that wasn't allowed to be didn't have the internet at that point so yeah it just became quite seriously mentally ill i mean the born in the wrong body thing is interesting because you know it's not that i feel that that's not a useful or apt metaphor for certain people but just you know i was aware from quite early on even through not particularly positive representations i knew that modifying my body was an option uh, and, you know, might be doable at some point. So, and, you know, I just didn't, I didn't really hate my body in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were things about it I didn't like, but, you know, I didn't didn't have this sort of all-consuming loathing of it, and, you know, it's a mixture of sort of not liking being male-bodied, not liking being kind of read as male and treated as such, in a way that's quite hard to describe, but, you know, all that social stuff hangs off the just purely physical impulse of now i need to modify my body this isn't right
2: and i think the other thing that's that's often difficult for people looking in to understand is just that length of the process we've obviously mm. talked about you know the, the fact that there's this months and months and months built in deliberately to the process but also one of the things we didn't mention when we were talking about the the, the tabloid coverage is this it's, it's, it's a visual medium so they obviously have these you know striking before and after yeah. photographs that's that's another cliche, which is no, is not a, an accurate representation mm. of a very, very, very gentle change that actually happens to your body over the course of the process.
3: Yeah, I mean, I write about that in the book, mm-hmm. and the, there's a theoretical kind of aside or portion between the surgery and the kind of recovery, because the surgery's moved to the beginning of the book, so I put that where the surgery sort of should be in the narrative. To say exactly that, that, mm-hmm. you know, newspapers historically... Use kind of before and after pictures particularly of trans women to kind of say look you know this i mean the famous one the most famous one is christian jorgensen mm-hmm. it's just, you know the headline is xgi becomes blonde bombshell or something like that and you know there's a photo of jorgensen before and after transition and actually she doesn't look that different except kind of cosmetically and certainly still recognizable and you know there's a very sensationalistic headlines like sort of operation to transform bronx youth don't really stand up and of course, you know, the coming of the internet has provided a lot more space for kind of narratives and pictorial narratives, video narratives, everything else. So so those sort of before and after pictures, just, you know, you can see that they don't ring true. Uh, I mean, in the book, I talk about Yushei Garbash, the um, Israeli artist that I talked with recently who did this flip book where she took yeah. hundreds of photos of herself day by day by day and then put, I think, 87 of them into a flip book. And you know, even in that context, even the kind of surgery is just incorporated into a fairly natural and naturalized sort of process of change. So so yeah, those before and after photos don't really work, and I mean, I say in the book that I had a photo of myself when I was twenty two that I found online ten years later, I think slightly less eight years later, maybe, but it's of me in kind of like women's clothes in Manchester in two thousand and four with my friend Joe, who kind of runs out the book, and it struck me that I could very easily be made before and after photos then whereas you know i'd just done my hair and put some makeup on and nothing physical had happened at that point so yeah i think they're you know they, they are quite disingenuous really and it's good that they're not really working anymore
2: and but you go into quite vivid detail of what's going to happen in mm. the operation i mean specifically because that was the impact on you yeah. like hearing it that that sort of first time but then later on, you also talk about this idea that you know of wanting to avoid the sort of voyeurism for mm-hmm. people who would want to to be reading the articles on the Guardian, looking for that sort of thing. So can we perhaps talk about the tension of of writing that.
3: Yeah, I mean in that was that was really difficult. I mean, I sort of I didn't really want to write about surgery in the Guardian series. I wanted to write more about the social aspects of transition. I felt I'd mm-hmm. done that, and I spoke to several people, like kind of close friends, trans activists few writers and all said no, you should finish it. Uh and there were some anxieties that yeah, talking about surgery sort of sucked a lot of the energy out of the sort of metaphorical room. But, you know, I felt that if I could find a different way of doing it, then it might be worth doing because actually you know i kind of thought if i tell this story of this surgery then it might kind of undercut yeah the more prurient and voyeuristic outsider perception so what i tried what well, you know i ended up deciding to do it in the guardian and decided to try and focus on like the psychological aspects and what mm-hmm. it was like to spend a week in hospital having that operation and of course in the the surgery article which also opens this book um you know there's no description of the actual process because mm-hmm. i'm asleep so you know i talk about like going the hospital on the tube and what that feels like going with a friend and going under general anesthetic and you know waking up and just dealing with the kind of pain and you know physical recovery and the kind of conversations we have and how all the things that to me are normally normal now mean a really big deal to do and so you know I talk about sneaking into the day room to watch like the Olympic football tournament and that being a really big deal to me and you know all the things that normally irritate me by being so kind of banal, actually, real comfort. But the way I handled talking about the details of the actual surgery, both in the Guardian series and the book, was, yeah, to try and put the readers in my position and be mm-hmm. like, OK, how would you feel if you were just confronted, you know, even though this is what you want to do, you know, you're, you're confronted with this medical language that, you know, very un-euphemistically and unsentimentally and mm-hmm. unflinchingly describes what's going to happen to your body and is really, really scary. And I thought the best way to do that would just be directly lifted so you know you as the reader get confronted with the same things that I got confronted with yeah I mean it was you know it's a hard decision to do that and that
2: was that was a you know visceral experience for me as mm. a disinterested reader but mm. I can imagine anybody that was reading this what you know people coming up wanting to think about going through the same process yeah it would have been even more of a
3: yeah thing. no I'm sure but also you know you kind of read it and I obviously got through it.
2: You did. So, um,
0: <laughs> I have to say the more grueling section for me was a bit about hair removal but that might just be a pass. Yeah. So, really? The hair removal uh, thing
3: was yeah. horrible. Yeah I mean that's probably the worst bit because it's one of ever I mean i was still having it early this year it really hurts and yeah. it costs loads <laughs> it's really expensive. Well, I, the other thing for me was the aftermath
2: as well, not just the surgery, but the, mm. you know, the weeks after when, you, when you're recovering. I mean, that, that you go through this almost worse depression than, be, than before it period mm. as well.
3: A quite visceral, physical mm. sort of depression, which, which I was Which you've been expected, about. yeah. I was yeah. going to say, you, you've been told that that's a thing that happened. Yeah, and, you know, just kind of thought, I'm already depressed, how bad can it be? Oh, mm. um, yeah, it really wasn't good. But, you know, just kind of got through it. I mean, it was, you know, it came on very suddenly, too quickly for me to really notice it. And it took some time to go away. I'm not sure. I, I think I might identify a point in the book where it sort of seems to lift. Maybe I don't. this will gradually, you know, kind of work through it. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult time. I mean, the transition itself was, was obviously incredibly stressful and difficult in lots of ways. And then the writing about it and you know, the position I got myself to in sort of mainstream media, you know, were quite stressful. And, you know, just physical experience of having that sort of surgery, being under, you know, a lot of general anaesthetic, painkillers... Uh, You know, it's hardly surprising that all those things culminated in a pretty monumental burst of depression right. Like.
0: how soon after the surgery itself did you have to deliver the column on it to the guardian um i think i gave it in i think
3: actually they kept it for they didn't publish it for ages for some reason i don't know why you know i wrote the column i think the end of july in two days and my mum read it so she was like the first editor for it uh and i sent it to the guardian who really liked it but it ended up not appearing until i think the 30th of august it was published that year 2012 so it got published a while after i mean funnily enough My article on the one before, the kind of getting ready for surgery, final preparations article, went up on the day that I had the operation, which was odd. So it, it, you know, it got sort of sat on for a while, people had to sub it. But um, yeah, it went up about five, six weeks later, I think.
0: Mm. So you were writing it just when this depression, you were in the middle of it? Kind of before,
3: really. The depression didn't really hit until... I stayed with my parents for three weeks and got kind of looked after. And obviously, you know, it wasn't a sort of particularly happy time, but I guess I was just in so much sort of pain. That I didn't really notice anything else. Really, it was only when I was sort of just starting to physically recover that the sort of psychological stuff, like, really went to pot. And that was when it got really difficult.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
0: You're listening to Little Atoms, where today we're talking to Juliet Jakes about her book, Trans, A Memoir.
2: Juliet, all through the book, there's a tension. We talked already about, you know, this idea of you publishing a memoir. And this came out of a series of articles you wrote for The Guardian about your transition. And all through the book, there's this tension between you obviously wanting trans issues to be more widespread but at the same time worrying that there's this idea that therefore you're putting yourself forward as as a spokesperson and that other members of the trans community would object to that but then at the same time the only way you can get this stuff published because there's this pressure to write about personal issues rather than about the politics and stuff so let's Let's talk about that tension and the pressure that's that's upon you to be a, a spokesperson.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's something I've kind of largely but not entirely opted out of now. I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, this Guardian series got commissioned six years ago mm-hmm. and started running in 2010, and the media landscape was really different. And, you know, the discourse on trans issues, even in the liberal, well, it's precisely the sort of liberal publications, particularly the Guardian mm-hmm. I was targeting, because, you know, the editors sort of had this sort of, twin conceit that trans politics, as told by trans people, would be too complicated and esoteric for their audiences and that they shouldn't censor people like Julie Bindle, Julie Birchell, who repeatedly wrote like anti trans texts from this sort of watered down kind of second wave bad femme position, uh, trans exclusionary position. And um you know, those two things meant that, you know, there was a discourse on trans issues, but it was just, you know, being told by kind of outsiders with a certain agenda. And, um, you know, I felt the need to try and break that really and you know it soon became apparent to me that the only way i'd be able to do that would be by writing from this first person perspective which i didn't really want to do uh and actually the blog was was not my idea it was my friend joe Stretch's idea and there's you know, stuff about that in the book He just said, you should pitch a blog to the Guardian They'll bite your hand off. And I just said, look, are you you aware of the Guardian's previous coverage of trans stuff? And he said, no, of course not. What's it like? And I told him and he just said, well, there's more reason to do it then. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of did it. And I didn't actually really foresee being put up as a sort of spokesperson or a role model. I was never very comfortable with either. Uh, I mean, Laverne Cox talks about being a possibility model, which is much better because you know possibility model says look you can do this role model says you have to be this mm-hmm. i found that very very constricting and you know when i sort of first joined twitter and was doing the trans column and every you know very occasionally i see myself described as some sort of trans role model i was like look i can only disappoint you um she actually like loads of my followers seem to be liberal democrats at the time it was odd but um I don't really see that anymore but um like
0: there aren't many of them about
3: anymore. no no i think they've done that aren't they um but Uh, It was 2010, and um, uh, yeah, so I found that very constraining, and obviously my background was writing a lot more about kind of avant-garde film, Mm. and experimental literature, underground literature, and, you know, arts criticism, and really that was more what I wanted to be doing. Uh, And I very quickly found that I just got kind of typecast, and I felt like I was bearing quite a lot of responsibility because I you know was doing an individual series had to be very clear that I was only representing myself but was also trying not to misrepresent anybody Um, but you know had no choice but to take up certain positions on you know who should be included under this like trans umbrella whether like transsexual people should be part of a broader transgender alliance or not which I always thought yes we should but you know that discussion got very heated you know whether or not we should work with the mainstream media at all given how hostile they've been to us and i was saying well look if we don't do it then other people will and it'll just be as bad if not worse uh you know all these kind of community discussions that i had to find a position on despite not having been very involved in kind of trans or queer communities Mm -hmm. because particularly in brighton in the sort of mid to late noughties they weren't very welcoming to trans women um there was a really weird moment at the queer mutiny club in brighton which i had all sorts of problems with but you know having previously found that you know i couldn't get arrested in there you know i'd done like six or seven of the guardian series and someone came up to me and was like you do that guardian thing no? it's really great and i you know it wasn't was he his fault but i kind of thought you know is that all i have to do to get accepted in these circles write a rolling blog for a major national newspaper that doesn't really seem kind of right so um, you have a lot of fun she? with that
2: ogler there's another scene I think it's the same place where you go with a friend as well as a goer because her skirt's too
3: short yeah yeah. yeah yeah Brighton anarchists um Yeah, that's one reason why I left.
0: (laughs) Was that the Cowley Club? That was the Cowley Club, yeah, yeah, bless
3: it. Heart's in the right place, I think.
0: This topic and this idea of becoming a spokesperson on any issue Mm. in today's public sphere was the part of this book that I enjoyed the most Mm. because it struck me that you were doing... A very brave thing writing about this stuff, particularly with the reservations you had. But there, you didn't have the machinery of the Guardian behind you protecting you. No, no, not you. really. No. And I sensed a lot of vulnerability at moments in the story where, mm. you know, at, at, at some moments, for example, I think is it just before surgery where you reach out to your community and they're very supportive. But at other moments, you feel very vulnerable in the public sphere. And I wondered if you felt you could talk about that a bit more because it was certainly something that spoke to me. Yeah,
3: I mean, the first year or so of the Guardian series, I felt really out on a limb because I was doing it quite regularly. It would you know go on the front page of the Guardian every time it went up. It was you know it felt like quite a big deal. Uh, and I was living in Brighton, knew a handful of trans people there, but you know none of them were kind of in the media and you know i'd read about mike penner stroke christine daniels in la who Mm. was a sports writer who'd come out as transsexual in i think 2007 had started writing a regular blog for the la times called women in progress and you know had a series of just like personal difficulties and misfortunes and sort of tragedies and ended up detransitioning and the blog was taken down and committing suicide and it's really traumatic story that i heard about sort of when i was just at the point of no return with this column really so that was in the background, that was something mm. I was aware of, and you know started to find a bit of a community on Twitter. Uh, Transmedia watch were very, very helpful, you know, just knowing they were there. I didn't actually need to interact that directly with them a lot of the time, but just making contact with them, knowledge they were around, and you know obviously doing the column gradually got drawn into certain kind of trans activist circles, which I do not really feel I fit in particularly well to, you know, partly just sort of personality and politics. I don't really feel I fit into them awfully well.
0: I mean, speaking of fitting in, there's another scene in the book where you're. Are you at the Groucho? Or are you at a party that you've, you've gone to because someone at the Groucho gave you a plus one? Mm. But you're suddenly in this kind of liberal media My elite bit of the book. setting, <laughs> yeah, <like. laughs> and you're sort of looking yourself. How? How did I get here? Yeah. And, and and
3: what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Who am I?
0: Because as far as I mean, bringing a lot of myself to this, but as far as I could see, you were surrounded by people who had extremely, you know. Stable careers as being part of the media, really, and yet mm-hmm. you were still working kind of temp jobs, trying to make ends meet, that point, I think, yeah. yeah, and 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 it almost felt like they were from another age, yeah. and that perhaps an age that was never. To be again, and then this mm. more vulnerable kind of—I just keep using the word vulnerable, but what I guess I mean is this out on a limb kind of blogger. So
3: precarious, precarious—that's
0: yeah. the right mm. word—is the norm now for, mm. for 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 the mainstream people
3: breaking into it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that was really how it felt. I mean, you know, I after I started doing the Guardian series, there was a sort of period where I just thought, oh, okay, yeah, I think I've cracked this now, having sort of tried to get into sort of journalism and writing for the previous sort of seven years or so. Kind of thought, I think I've cracked this, and then. You know, suddenly sort of found that the commissions dried up again. That I didn't really want to just talk about trans stuff all the time, but no one really was commissioning me to do much else at that point, at least not regularly. And that you know, I had to make a decision either I did a lot of writing that I didn't want to do, and a lot of writing as well because you know, sort of opinion pieces, blogs got like £90 a time. And so, if you're going to make a living out of that, then you have to do an awful lot of it. And you know, if you do too much of that writing, you run out of things to say, your audience gets sick of you. Um, you become a sort of persona a sort of parody of yourself really and you know you can pick your own columnists that you think that's happened to but, but
2: there's also on that side which I mean you sort of raised a little bit earlier on but this idea that for, especially for the, the young people that are blogging especially for women as well there's this idea that Let's face it, even The Guardian, if you're writing those comment pieces, you're basically writing a slightly controversial thing, a good headline on it, and then you're basically thrown to the wall yeah. you know there isn't that support. That's yeah. like that's the thing that brings in hits and that's yeah. the thing that brings in money.
3: That's why I just decided not to do it. <laughs> uh, the last time I wrote for Comments Free was two and a half years ago and it was about the transsexual mixed martial arts fighter Fallon Fox, was fighting like women's division and so there's some transphobic comment from someone saying look who's this sick freak who wants to beat up women and so the guardian asked me to write a response and there were two ways i could respond to that and of course one is to just do you know i one, you know, I said, how many words have I got? And they said 600. And so I got them up to 750 because there are two ways I could have done that. And one is to just say Fallon Fox as a woman, deal with it, which, yeah, would have just got me absolutely slaughtered in the comments. And the Guardian encourage you to go in the comments and engage (laughs) with the commenters as well, which I think is a little bit like invite telling professional footballers to like step into the stand and engage with the supporters (laughs) who are like hurling abuse at them for like missing an open goal or something. But I think it's like that. But You know, there's two ways to write this piece. One was to do the Fallon Fox as a woman deal with it. And the other was to write a sort of history of how sport came to be segregated by gender, Mm -hmm. times when those segregations had been crossed and when sporting authorities had to deal with it and how they dealt with it, leading up to the presence of Stockholm consensus and, you know, legislations about transsexual athletes but not transgender ones. So that was one I went for. But the trouble with that was I didn't have much room. And I was writing and I was like, I've got 400 words, so I'm over halfway through and I'm at the 1928 Olympics, this isn't going to work. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't write for them again. And, you know, I I found those sort of things very frustrating. You know, I've had meetings with a couple of, like, quite big outlets about either regular editorial positions or regular freelance contributions in fairly high-profile spaces, but they just want me to write about trans stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some cases I've said I want to write about other things, kind of literature, and they've said, no, we've got other people doing that. And they will give you know, the blog on experimental literature to somebody who's, you know, far less qualified to write here. And, you know, it's really kind of frustrating. But I'm sure there are tons and tons and tons of people who feel like that. So I can't complain too much because, you know, I've done all right.
1: I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to resnor's FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and
0: culture. Still, so it strikes me as a bit of a microcosm on another issue that you, you briefly touch on in the book, which is how many transgender people end up in sex work mm. because people can't get beyond the fact that they're transgender to, you know, offer them other opportunities. Yeah, for I mean,
3: seems. I think... These days, from what I hear, that's more the case in America because of the difference in the respective healthcare systems. I actually tried to do a project a few years ago about kind of like sex work and HIV, employment legislation, in this country benefits, things like that. And actually, because we, you know, in two thousand and eleven, we had a bit more of a social security network than we do now, and you know, we still have. The sort of basics, so people aren't having to do sex work if they don't want to in the same way. But I do sort of say, you know, in terms of kind of supply and demand, it's it sort of, it's lots to do with kind of transphobia and sexuality and how that functions. And like a lot of straight men, you know, it's hard for them, you know, culturally to be allowed to form a relationship with a trans woman. And so, you know, if they're sexually drawn to trans women, then, you know, a lot of the time they will do that through paying for sex workers rather than you know forming a relationship with somebody there's different reasons why people do it but you know that struck me as a socio-economic reason why and of course for lots of trans women you know employment legislation means that we can't be sat for transitioning but it does mean people can just kind of pass over us at interview stage and um and that's not mm. what's going
0: on with these editors, but it's more a kind of lack of imagination that you could write about anything else. Yeah, yeah,
3: I think so. And just, I mean, it's just the way the media works. You know, editors have certain names that associate with certain subjects and who they reach for. And, you know, I'm, I'm best known for sort of writing about trans stuff. And, you know, there's been a very genuine existential dilemma for me because there's that not wanting to be typecast and wanting to write about other things versus, you know, having a very strong sort of personal and political need to write about this stuff to try and improve... This sort of situation, so, so that, I mean, this book is just full of kind of duality and tension, really, and like that's,
0: that only, that's I think one that I think. only makes it a better read though, a really really yeah. enjoyable. but
3: having now added this
2: book mm. to the pile of, of commentary and, and books on on trans issues, and it's a really important book. How do you think in more general terms, how do you think the representation of trans people in, in the media has changed, do you think is, is it any better?
3: Yeah, it is. You know, there are far more voices and particularly trans voices talking about trans subjects. I think that's, you know, a huge improvement and more of a diversity of trans identities breaking into the media. Kinda of slowly, but you can see it happening. I mean it's still predominantly kind of white and middle class and male to female, but you know, I think more space is slowly opening up. You know, it's it's a long and frustrating process. And you know, in the book I talk about trying to get like Ignacio Rivera's like sort of genderqueer mm-hmm. performance artists of colour and Jason Barker was, like, female to male, trans-masculine person, Uh, and not managed to get either of them into The Guardian, like, five years ago. But, you know, I think slowly seeing more voices coming through. I mean, you know, Laverne Cox and Janet Mock, in particular, I think, are sort of really great. Uh, I mean, they've been sort of overshadowed by Kate and Jenna now, although, you know, they're still quite visible, and, you know, you can still see and hear them, but, you know, Cox and Mock... You know, we're going on kind of talk shows and talking kind of really intelligently and quite subversively about, you know, how trans things are portrayed in the media and, you know, questioning interviewers who ask them certain things, saying, why are you asking me that? And yeah, you know, no, they're really good. So yeah, I mean, you know, I think it is getting better. I mean, I worry about, you know, trans even being kind of co-opted and people talking about how fashionable it is at the moment. And, you know, I worry about how to make that kind of sustainable and more meaningful. But, um, you know, I'm kind of moving in a different direction now, really. So I feel I've given all I have to give in this particular sphere and, you know, someone else can have a go now.
2: I mean, I want to widen that out a bit because obviously the more the more visible trans people get, there's a widening of interest there seems to be this thing going on. I don't really want to get into that whole sort of the cultural wars thing. That's
3: no, I mean, that's going on because I don't
2: think anybody really comes out of it particularly well. But mm. I mean, we did. Like, we have a, like a, a quite a large group of friends in common, and some of the people on on one side of that seem to be like showing. I was just, like, the whole sort of like Janice Raymond thing has not really gone away. No, there no. is this like almost an academic interest that is enabling people to talk about that sort of thing on social media, almost mm. completely separate from the idea that people are out there live trying to live their every weird. day. I wonder what you you sort of Well, that's exactly
3: it. I mean, a lot of that perspective comes from just a lack of acknowledgement that, like, trans people are actually kind of, you know, living people with, you know, real kind of experience. And yeah, like you say, that academicisation, that sort of distanciation, dehumanisation, you know, all of those things sort of contribute to that kind of line of thought, really. And that's something I was trying to do with both the Guardian series and the book was sort of say, well, actually, you know, beyond your kind of the crude cheap stereotypes that your critiques of trans people actually quite fundamentally rely on a real person with kind of you know diverse range of interests and you know sort of particularly Janice Raymond and those types of writers they had a stereotype of they sort of simultaneously stereotyped trans women as being sort of sneaky and smart and snaky enough to sort of learn perfectly all the sort of theories and sort of tropes of like kind of second wave lesbian feminist theory enough to sort of secretly infiltrate their groups and take them over from the inside but also being kind of utterly conservative sort of Stepford wife just total subscribers to sort of patriarchal Mm -hmm. gender roles and you know i described it in slightly stronger terms in the new statesman piece i wrote but like on a theoretical level that's just a mess really and it's you know shame on anyone who didn't see through it uh quite frankly because you know people who really should have known better were taken in by it but you know so i kind of found that in the writing you know in the guardian series i didn't really have to do that much more than sort of like know what had happened at norwich against colchester in order for those kind of (laughs) stereotypes to fall down really they don't don't really work Uh, so that's been quite interesting yeah i mean you know i try and you know, well, I've only ever really addressed those cultural wars directly once, which is in that long piece for the <laughs> New States. And one of the many things I said in it, I made eight and a half thousand words long. So I didn't want to have to repeat myself. And I, mean, I want to be one of those columnists who just writes the same piece over and over. But, you know, one of the things I say is that really what this comes down to is like trans people saying accept our identities and transphobes saying no and it's hard to find a sort of a way to fix that, so you have to kind of go around it. And what I was trying to do with the book and the series, really, was just sort of convince most kind of outsiders and people who are sort of undecided or not even aware of this conflict, try and make them think that my side was the kind of fairer one. As a
2: way to finish off, well, not, talk any further about trans and memoir and, and yourself as a, as a representative of the trans community let's finish off talking about what you're doing now you're writing fiction again
3: aren't you? uh yeah i mean i always wanted to write fiction i'm back to it i mean i'm doing a phd at the moment which is actually a project reference in the book which mm-hmm. is a 20th century british trans history but told through short fiction which I thought would be more interesting than doing it as a sort of non-fiction book and less pressured. I think. I mean, there's still quite a lot of pressure on it, but less pressure. And also doing other fiction uh, bits of kind of art criticism again. I mean, I've just written a piece on the Lithuanian film artist uh, Dimentas Narkoviceus for Sight and Sound magazine. So um, you know, lots of people who follow my writing will be like straight onto that. I'm sure. But um, yeah, more more kind of art, a lot of art criticism now, really, and, and short fiction, and you know. Some other things planned, but they'll be there first.
2: right, well, we've been talking to
3: Juliet Jakes about Trans, a memoir. So, Juliet, thanks
2: for for joining us today. And, Becky, hopefully you'll come back for the 800th edition. I'll be right there. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter, at LittleAtoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.